Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. And we're back with another episode of On the Record with Tiffany and one of my favorite epidemiologists, Dr. Anil Mangla uh, is here. And, and I just want to say that I'm so happy to have you here during Black History Month because of, because of your history in helping our community. You know, as we're talking about the, the subject of unity and how uh, all of us need to come together on behalf of one another. I, I couldn't think of a better person to bring in and to talk about that than you with your your uh, history and, and background because when I whenever I think about you I always think of you as as a living legend and a living uh, example of of what we should be doing uh, in terms of inclusion and bringing people in. So I want to talk a little bit about, I want you to tell my listeners about you. I want them to get to know the real Dr. Neil Mangler. <laughs> well, as, as normal, uh, Tiffany, it's a very, it's an honor and a pleasure being with you. Um, you know, we've worked together for many years. I think we've made a significant difference uh, in our community, not just by health, but many other, uh, you know, pertinent uh, areas. And, um, you know, it is um, just glad to share my experiences, uh, especially uh, to what it pertains to uh, what the situation we're going through right now. So uh, it's my pleasure. I mean, you you have really been an example of what, what we really need today. The one thing that I, I think people can always count on with you is that you're going to be professional, that you're right. going to be uh, thoughtful about what's what's happening, and whether we want to hear your answer or not, whether it lines up with what the the uh, establishment is saying or not, right. you're going to give the answer that the data and the science says. And uh, I can't think of anything that we need more than that right now. Can can you talk to us a little bit about your history and about your advocacy work in South Africa? Because you've been you've been an advocate for humanity for many decades. Yes. Yeah, so thank you for bringing that up. So my history is a, is a very rich history, and I think it really complements what we're going through right now for our Black History Month in America, because it it. it it, it fits perfectly to what us South Africans went through for centuries, and, and especially the past few decades, which seems a long time ago, but it hasn't been a long time ago. It's been about 30 years till independence actually mm -hmm. occurred, where there was one man, one vote in that country. And so, you know, this all started in the 60s with the Sharpwell riots back in South Africa which was not too far from, you know, uh, what I'm going to just say, what we have gone through in this country a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, uh -huh. And the, my history of uh, understanding where racial discrimination really was a key factor was um, uh, June 16th, 1976. This is a uh, public holiday in South Africa which uh, uh, which which really signifies an important step in the revolution uh, during uh, the country's independence. And this was when the schools in Soweto uh, and the rest of the country started boycotting the resistance for learning Afrikaans in uh, schools, which was more a a, a, a white man's language and mm -hmm. and also uh, you know starting school boycotts to protest and again very peaceful protest mm -hmm. is again the key that our constitution allows us to do and so this peaceful protest 
uh, turned into riots and, and, and violence. And so that's where this history of mine actually starts. These violence actually went right up to 1990 until uh, Nelson Mandela was released. And again, it was a very peaceful transfer of power compared to what we have seen again, right? So you can imagine and we are in a first world country experiencing something that even South Africa did not experience regarding the official and legal apartheid that existed between black and white. Uh, my experience, um, it's, um, it's very vivid even up to today uh, because when we started protesting, and the protesting was very clear because of uh, racial discrimination, uh, it was uh, as uh, we were classified as non-whites in that country, uh, we were restricted to many, many different um, scenarios. Number one was major, was our education. We were not allowed mm -hmm. to go to any universities and the, some universities were only designated to us. We, could, we were very restricted to live in certain areas which were called sectional areas. And because of your race and your color, you were not uh, allowed to buy houses or live where the whites lived. So that was kind of part of the protest that started. Uh, I was still in high school at that time. And we started uh, uh, protesting. And our protests were very peaceful. We, we did not attend classes. And we kind of sat on the football fields and soccer fields and uh, sang freedom songs. And you would see the police around us uh, with, uh, you know, we call they, they call them shumbogs mm -hmm. and maidens and, 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 and rubber bullets and bullets. And, and you know, um, we were beaten up. I mean, we still, uh, I still feel the, the, the pains of what we have gone through. And uh, many of us lost friends, many lost, many of us lost. Uh, key figures and leaders uh, of apartheid in that country that were part of our community. Um, and again, you know, these are things that uh, we saw a few weeks ago in this country, which um, I felt personally, um, it was barbaric. Uh, there was no respect for our constitution. Um, it was an assault for our democracy. It was lawlessness. It was intimidation. And most important, I think it was actually criminal behavior on behalf of these rioters. And, and you know, the, 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 the thing I feel is uh, needs to occur is there needs to be accountability. Because I have gone through it and I understand what this was all about. And you, you know, Thank you for 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 your sharing of your history, because if if we don't look back at history, then we're destined to repeat it. And as we saw with the insurrectionists, this country fought a war so that the the rebel flag would never be walked through the halls of the House of the People. Right. And we saw that on January 6th. So, you know, to have someone who, who can give a historical account yeah. of, of what happened with apartheid, which is, you know, I, I never thought I'd see the day where, where we would have, have anything in regards to uh, race right. brought to the forefront in such an egregious way with with calls for hanging the vice president right with calls for for killing Nancy Pelosi right all of it was was uh, a terrible experience and a and a major wake up call that uh regardless of our differences we have to get together we because that we can't we can't let something like that stand. No, absolutely not, Stephanie. Uh, you know, it, when when we were going through this in South Africa, I mean, 
we were arrested without trial. There was absolutely no trial. There, people were just arrested, put in jail, and that was it. I mean, it was it was at that point where you know, have we reached that point in this country, with with no accountability, with everybody thinking, you know, uh, let's give let's give our past president a chance. We're making this a big deal. It's not a big deal. This needs to stop, and this needs to stop now. Because yeah, we've seen history, and we don't want history to repeat itself. Exactly, and we know that this kind of thinking is, is it, it's divisive, it's incendiary. I mean, pick your adjective. It it is something that you must take a stand against. Yes, you cannot be uh, on the fence, and you can't say. Things like, oh well, we can we can compromise on this because there is no compromising on devaluing humanity. Yes, there is no there's no room for that. We all have the same value uh, in in the eyes of whatever God you believe in, and in the eyes of other human. So you know that requires that type of behavior requires a response from those of us who are are uh thinkers and who and who don't share that that sentimentality yes we can't absolutely. just let it go absolutely i mean i mean you hit the nail on the head this is this is all to do with our democracy and you know we call ourselves the most powerful country in the world where we follow mm-hmm. rules and regulations and policies and and despite all those policies how could this ever happen and and then you know this is something that should be stopped immediately it should not happen and um you know i speak of uh, having been part of something like this not this incident but something similar in a different country and being on the other side, those memories and those scars are still with us. That's right. I mean, you went through something that when when uh, I was a kid was, you know, apartheid was was uh, the scourge of the earth to the rest of us, and especially to this nation, uh, a free nation. Uh, we just all thought that it was it was egregious and wrong, right. uh, and and uh, stood with you in spirit in in fighting apartheid. And now here we are in the United States after all that we've seen in in South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, in in various nations uh, across the world, because this is not unique to South Africa or unique to the United States. It is a, it's, it's a terrible cancer that exists all over the world. And we're, but we, as the free, as the leaders of the free world, we're, we've historically set the example that we would not tolerate this. That we would not tolerate the devaluing of other humans, and to see us uh, not only tolerated, but to have the the leader of the free world support it. I mean, you bring you know, and and let me remind your listeners and your viewers again that in South Africa, one man, one vote only occurred thirty years ago. That's right. Up to 30 years ago, it was, if you were non-white, depend, you know, because of the color of your skin, you could not vote. So either way, you liked it or not, there was a extreme right-wing government in place all the time. Mm-hmm. And that government, you know, I mean, caused everyone who was non-white, every one of us were almost suppressed, education-wise, health-wise, activity-wise, and so nobody with being non-white could ever come up 
in that country because we were suppressed all the time. And, you know, that's that's what what we need to think about here. Yes. We need to think about that and, and really take that take what was going on in South Africa into consideration when we're looking at what's happening here. Because what needs to happen from this point forward is dialogue. You can't have change and progress if you're not willing to get to the table with people that you don't agree with. We don't have to agree on everything, but we do have to hear that other person's grievances because I think, you know, when you listen to the rhetoric beyond the far fringes, beyond the far right, beyond the far left, when you listen to the rhetoric and hear what regular people who showed up to events like that, what are the regular people? Why are they there? And what's going on with them? Is it because they've lost jobs? Is it because they're missing, you know, they, they haven't had a raise in 10 years or you know, and a sundry of things, but but those have to be addressed, you know, because this is not going to go away. You know, I, it, it feels like we want it to just, we want to go, okay, now we have a new administration and everything's going to be good. Right. And I do believe that we have a new administration and there's a lot of hope around it. Right. I, I definitely uh, agree with that. But to think that the that that faction that we just saw is going to go away is is mistaken thinking. Right. I mean, we cannot undo what was already done in four years overnight. Yeah, and and I think some of that was was definitely there well before the four before years. Was, but yeah. it, but I think the four years like really stoked the fires of that uh, of that that kind of mentality but you know when when i look at you and just knowing who you are uh i know that we have a lot of a lot of hope because i know (laughs) i know your fortitude i know my fortitude our team (laughs) we're pretty tough group (laughs) when it comes down to, to making things happen right and to to our passion for the community. Yes. You know, because when you get like the in the military they use a twelve man team uh model, right? And you get twelve people together who are passionate and driven about what they're doing. Right. You they are unstoppable. Yes. And uh I know that that's the case with us. You know, when we're looking at, uh, I've, I've been looking at the numbers on the vaccine rollout, and uh, and I'm and I have to say I'm so proud of you and all the work you've done on this uh, vaccine, um, uh, on on contact tracing for the the coronavirus, and just supporting uh, our nation as we try to to find a a a, a solution to coronavirus. Um, because a lot of the solution, a lot of the the uh, pathway to a solution for something like a virus is in contact tracing and figuring out how is this virus moving through the population and what is it doing. Um, and I appreciate that that you've been candid all the way through this. You know, like like when when uh, our president was pushing our previous administration was was pushing for um, making statements that weren't weren't accurate about what should be done and and how it should be done and you were just like no this is this that's wrong <laughs> you know science is important um, you know I, I I just know that there's there's more that we can do in terms of vaccine adoption. And it's and a lot of that misinformation that we saw um, that was being put out previously, I, I truly believe, has resulted in the uh, the hesitancy that we're seeing on vaccine adoption. Right. 
Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's a very good point. You know, le- let me start from uh, the beginning. Um, when um, when we encountered the pandemic early last year, about February, March, I know uh, I had an interview with uh, Sarah Fogani on Ken's Five, and mm-hmm. we started looking at numbers and, and, and you know, made an extrapolation of where we were going to be in a year. Mm-hmm. Looking at data as an epidemiologist and looking at all the projection models, um, I had already postulated we're going to reach within a year about a half a million deaths. And that's where we are today. But that was all data-driven fact, right? That's right. And so um, the, the most important thing is I, I, I had the honor, thanks to the state of Texas as well as uh, our governor, uh, Governor Greg Abbott, to give me the opportunity to be part of a team uh, in uh, West Texas uh, or in the Panhandle to really help in the very initial stages of this pandemic to um, develop a platform. So to make sure, number one, is how do we track these positive cases? Number two is how do we do contact tracing? Uh, Trying to, you know, if you think back a year ago, those were very new terms. The terminology, mm-hmm. the definitions. None of us knew what that was. <laughs> and so we started already thinking of these contact tracing uh, platforms and how to implement that and, and, and how to track individuals. Mm-hmm. Today, that has become one of the most important uh, factors in trying to mitigate cases for COVID-19 is the contact tracing. And so as the data came in into identifying uh, a positive case, uh, we uh, as a health department implemented a significant amount of investigation. And the role and the whole idea of an investigation was almost detective work. Mm-hmm. And so, so our epidemiologists are almost disease detectives indirectly mm-hmm. and, and, and started questioning these cases. Um, where were you over the past two weeks? Who were you in contact with? You know, and then and, and looking at the infectious period and, and identifying the so-called bubble that they worked mm-hmm. in, right? Mm-hmm. And so that allowed us to identify individuals that may have been in co- close contact with the case and may have been exposed. And that's the key. Um, those individuals were then called upon and asked to quarantine, while the case themselves were asked to isolate. Even up to today, people, after a year of the pandemic, people are confused between those two terminology or definitions. So anybody that is a case, that means has the disease, is isolated. Mm -hmm. That person is isolated. The virus, you know, goes through the system. They got treatment, medication. The virus dies down gets inactivated, and the person becomes non-infectious, right? So that takes about 10 days. So normally, if someone is positive, we tell them to isolate for 10 days, and then they should be fine if they don't have symptoms because they will be non-infectious. But a close contact is somebody that was in close contact with a person who's contagious. They go to quarantine for 14 days, and the quarantine is just telling you they have not been infected yet, but they've been exposed. So the body goes through what's called an incubation period, and the incubation period goes to about 10 to 14 days, average about five days. So typically, I'm saying that typically, if someone is exposed, they may be develop symptoms on day five or six meaning that they were infected because of that exposure. But we wait for that 14 days just to make sure because the body may not develop the viral load in those amount of days. 
So the 14 days, if they do not develop any viral load, that means that even if they may have been exposed, they were not infected. Mm-hmm. That's the terminology. What we started seeing very early in this pandemic around already April, May, is many people that were close contacts were starting to get converted. Almost 30% were converting from a close contact to a positive case. So now think of this. The infrastructure in those early days was such that there was no funding and resources for health departments to hire contact tracing. That means anybody that may have been exposed were not asked to quarantine, which meant they may have been positive and they were around the community spreading the disease. Dr. Fauci has many times, and he has again uh, promoted contact tracing being one of the key factors right now in making sure that that should be taking place to mitigate cases, right? I'm not even talking of vaccines yet. We'll get to that part. But this, this, this whole concept of contact tracing plays a very important role. So that's where we have been with the pandemic regarding the case and the close contact. Now let's talk of the vaccine. So vaccines will start being, you know, manufactured and, and there were many clinical trials that ran. And it was, it was I think as, as early as maybe August and September that I know you and I had an interview and I've had numerous interviews uh, where I felt that as a kidney, chronic kidney disease patient, number one. Number two. For my kid listeners who don't know, you received, you just received a kidney transplant. You, you were on dialysis yes. for eight years. Being on dialysis and then a transplant patient, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that the vaccine I take, put in a foreign body, foreign particle virus or a segment of it into my body was a major deal. Mm-hmm. So initially, I actually felt I was not ready and refused to take the vaccine, mm-hmm. not knowing what data we were going to get because no data was shared at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it's not till recent, maybe um, two months now, that there was sufficient amount of data out there to show the efficacy and the effectiveness of this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, I have given many podcasts and many interviews regarding the vaccines mm-hmm. and what herd immunity is all about, how vaccines work. And so two months ago, I completely took a turn, 180 degree turn on, I am now prepared to take the vaccine. The benefits outweigh, completely outweigh the risks. Mm-hmm. And so, as I start getting these vaccines, I will make sure for our chronic kidney disease community, where I sit as the chair of the board for the Texas Kidney Foundation, I will promote to everyone that this is the safest thing anybody can do for your health, for your family, and for the community. Especially while we're in, in the middle of a pandemic. That you this- must take this vaccine. It is crucial that we get this vaccine in our arms, build this herd immunity, so we can not just serve us and our immediate family members, but the entire nation. And eventually, of course, the entire world, because you want that herd immunity. Now, I, do want to, I do want to hear, and I do want to make sure it doesn't change people's behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. very important in bringing up the story of vaccines as we get into these vaccines. Um, I get numerous calls. I get many people discussing this with me, and they actually feel, hey, I got the vaccine. I'm immune for life. I have a bubble around me. I will never get... I do whatever I want to do. Yeah. 
and, and that is not the way we need to regard this vaccine. Mm -hmm. The vaccine trials have end product or end, end points. The end point of this vaccine right now is that if you get infected, your symptoms may not be as severe. It's going to decrease your symptoms. It's going to decrease your fatality rate. It is not going to stop you from getting infected. Mm -hmm. You still will, and you may get infected. So that means you, you, you shouldn't be doing anything you want and go anywhere you want. So that's the key take-home message, number one. The key take-home message, number two, is you're still going to have to have your masks. Mm -hmm. You're still going to social distance. Mm -hmm. You're still going to make sure you have a proper hygiene. And the reason behind it is if the clinical trials for these vaccines, the endpoint, like I brought it up, mm -hmm. has not clarified yet that if you get vaccines, will you or will you not be infected? So we've seen cases, people are getting vaccinated. You're still going to get positive. You get infected. Your test shows positive. You're still going to have to quarantine. Mm -hmm. Still going to have to isolate. Because you still, even with the vaccine, you still may be contagious and infect others. So again, the whole idea of this vaccine is to help you with your health yes. in decreasing or minimizing your symptoms and fatality rate. But it's not telling you you're never going to get infected. And it's not telling you you will not infect others if you're positive. That's so right. everybody needs to take this key message that we are still, we don't have enough data to show those endpoints. And right. thus we need to continue with our masks. We need to continue with our social distancing, even though we have received the vaccine. And you, you're absolutely right. That it was a great explanation of that because, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't think I, I've mentioned this uh on, on the show, I may have mentioned it on the show, but uh, I've, I've had COVID-19. I got it, my husband, both of my kids. Well, it has been difficult. It's been difficult. We've, we've had, you know, I knew it was going to be tough when we were diagnosed. When I was diagnosed, I was so sick. The, the level of fatigue that you feel the level of of it's not worth it not to get vaccinated if you have that option when 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 i got covid uh the the vaccines i think they were just coming out the rollout hadn't even happened um we don't know how we got it but we did uh but the way it affected each person in the household was different yes you know, my husband was so bad uh, that he had to get an antibody infusion. And it, it really, the antibody infusion turned it around for him in, in a matter of a couple of days. But he could hardly walk across the room. He couldn't go up and down the stairs. He was just, it was, and you know how healthy he is. Yes. He's always been just vigilant about his health and very, very healthy. Um, my 11-year-old, had a resting heart rate of 132 and uh, she looked fine for all intents and purposes, but her heart was racing all the time. Yeah. And then the, the youngest one who was eight had, she started breathing like she was asthmatic. Like you could, she was yeah. just labored breathing. I mean, all of that at the same time, there is nothing you know, at the same time, the hospitals were filling up. So here we are in this situation where everybody is sick. Yes. Varying degrees of illness. And uh, this is an unknown. And I said all of that to say it. The doctors and the scientists in this country have been working themselves to the quick. And you, the people doing contact tracing, all of the experts have been working themselves to the quick mm -hmm. to find options right. for us and the rest of the world. Right. And they've done that. 
They've done their job. They've done that. Trust in the fact that they would not be, you know, these men and women would not have put out something that they can't give to their own family members and stand up for with their colleagues. Most of, of the people that are working on this have put their entire lives into mm -hmm. safety and your health. Uh, when a person decides to become a public servant like Dr. Mangler, like Dr. Fauci, they do so. Dr. Mangler and Dr. Fauci had every opportunity in the world to go and do things that make a lot more money <laughs> than being a public servant, but chose to do so because their passion lies in helping people. And you have to have people who can think through the weightiest problems in the world, even during the worst moments that we're having in the world. And that is what they have all been doing in, in succinct uniform while we've had chaos going on, blazing around us with political infighting and all of this other stuff. These, this group of people have remained resilient and have put their time, blood, sweat, and tears into getting this out. It's not something that was done uh, and just slapped together. It's something that they had been working on and as soon as you know RNA viruses they've they've been working on on how to address RNA viruses in general for a long time right Dr. Manglum? Absolutely I mean this is not a new uh, topic of discussion mm -hmm. uh, RNA viruses have been you know discussed and researched for for many many years so the, when, when we got to this point with this pandemic and this, this particular RNA virus, there was a starting point, you know, an underlying body of work that, that was already there. So this wasn't just put together quickly. Yes, normally it takes a, a longer time to come, come to a vaccine and to develop a vaccine, but the body of, of knowledge that underpins how this vaccine was developed was already in place. So that, to, to act like it's, it's the efficacy of the vaccine is not good, isn't true. Because there were no shortcuts taken. People did not, your, your lives are as important to them today as they were 10 years ago, five years ago, when they were developing the underlying information and the body of knowledge that was used to move down the road for this vaccine. We, were, we are very fortunate to have that and to have, have them working as diligently as they have. Because I know just from watching you, just how, how much work you've been putting in how many hours and if you saw that you know i i like to think i put in some 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 work at, at texas kidney foundation but to watch you work in 18 hour days listening to your accounts about families you know because with dr mangler he wasn't just doing contact tracing he was talking to those families helping them get through through uh, a virus at the beginning of the pandemic when there was nothing for us to give people. Yeah. You know, there was nothing that, that they didn't even really understand, okay, what are the symptoms? Because the symptoms have been all over the place. You know, like I said, in my family, there were four of us and everybody had something different going on, you know? And it, if I'm just so thankful that what happened with us happened in month 10 and not in month one. Yeah, but you know, Tiffany, you, you know, I do want to also bring up the fact that where we are today and, and what we have done is remarkable. It, it, but it all is teamwork. It That's could right. not be done by one. 
That's right. You needed a team, and more important, you needed a diverse team mm-hmm. to understand. And and as you know, I'm one of the experts in the social determinants of health. Yes, the social determinants of health. We really practice equity and 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 mm-hmm. and, and more important, diversity of team members. Mm-hmm. And so in a community. We want to make sure that we have the correct team member to work with specific communities because they understand the dynamics, the family. They understand the politics within that. They understand the culture. That's right. And I throw that out because we're going through that right now, even as we speak. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of uh, one of my models and one of my goals, um, and. and and I interject this because of how we started this entire uh, interview is talking about apartheid. And so, you know, when I look back and, and, and that has engraved into me what my vision is. And the vision I have is uh, very clear to identify pathways for immigrants and for the underserved population in this country. Number one is to overcome the barriers of health. That's right. Right? And number two is the barriers in higher education. Mm -hmm. Because during apartheid, we went through that. That's right. But my dad could not get a higher education in that country because of the color of his skin. So he went internationally, got educated, came back to South Africa, and was the first Indian in South Africa to be a pharmacist. Wow. So bringing that into account, what we see today, the equity part, and why my passion so much is the barriers of, to identify health, is we still up to today see the highest amount of fatality rate among African-Americans, among Hispanics. Nobody talks about it except certain groups. And I'm very grateful to El Sharpton, right? In his programs, stresses and stresses. But data has clearly showed that's where the focus should be. It should be. That's where resources should go. Because if we want to help the country, we're going to help where the hotspots are. And these are the hotspots. And that's where our goal is. And that's where I'm trying to take our organization in saying we have identified the most high-risk population. Let's get started there before we even encounter more fatalities. So this this was a perfect segue of how you started with the apartheid to where we are today. Because it all falls in place. Then you're absolutely right. As leaders... We go to implement this. We go to advise individuals. We go to provide this information to our leaders, meaning the mayors, meaning the council, mm-hmm. meaning whoever it is, because this is what the data is showing us, and this is how our policy should be put in place. And because we have spent the time, our organization has spent the time to make inroads within those communities specifically because we care about what's happening in those communities. And for just such a time as this, we really are prepared because the way that we, uh, you know, for my listeners, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I had an executive committee meeting with Dr. Mangla and our EC. And we talked about how we would, pivot the organization from uh, Texas Kidney Foundation uh, through the pandemic and beyond. How would we be able to serve this population? And one of the first things, you know, the the minds on our uh, board are are in varying parts of uh, kidney disease and, and the greatest minds, just lots of different different space, different avenues in the kidney space. And so, uh, one of the things uh, I think I came to the table with, with we need to, to test in a different way. We've got to be able to test so that we 
we're not touching we're not we're we're keeping people safe because they're not going to come out to big events um so we started just talking amongst ourselves and figuring out okay how are we going to do that and came up with um okay maybe we can get do some laboratory tests so then i called every lab <laughs> every place that i thought might do it and most people weren't weren't doing any testing because they they weren't taking on any new clients because of the, the labs uh anyway we ended up creating uh a 30 biomarker test that uh includes uh the uh, a urinalysis and and a general phys general uh blood work the same things that one would do in their uh with their doctor but for $50 for $50 all of a sudden you know we created something that that is a stopgap in this healthcare crisis and the first thing we talked about was food deserts uh how do we get get people uh connected to healthcare beyond just the um beyond the test and and knowing what their their biomarkers are but how do we make them more um empowered and and advocates for themselves i mean these are the things that when i'm looking at you on this because we're zooming also while we're <laughs> making this this uh uh radio show one of the the things that that drew me to you when i first started my job because i think i met you the, my first week i came came by your uh i went by your your office at that time uh you were running a lab then <laughs> You're always running a lab someplace, but <laughs> but you're running a lab, and uh, and I was talking to you, and I asked about data. I asked, is there a way we can, you know, what we're collecting all this stuff at Texas Kidney Foundation? What are we doing with it? And you just lit up like a bulb, and you were like, <laughs> well, <laughs> you can, you we need to put, collect this data on people. And help them use their use their data for more than just just uh, collecting it, but but also help the individual. You can you can use this to help the individual get better and make better choices within their the scope of what their of of their knowledge base and and where they live and all of that. And you know, when I look at what where we're at right now. If you have a sick society, you can't have a healthy country. You can't have a healthy economy. When we're having that same discussion, we've got to open this place back up so everybody can get back to work. You can't get back to work if you can't breathe, if you can't walk up the stairs, if you can't walk across the room. We can't get back, get our our great GDP, gross domestic product, uh, and all of our exports going if there's nobody to do any of that. That's a part of the, the thought process that had to go on. And as we created uh, our stopgap and our, our uh, answer to the, this public health crisis, and, and our listeners and, and viewers are going to see that as it, in the next few weeks as we move, move into our campaign, you know, I just have to say to you, Dr. Mangla, I'm thankful that you for your leadership and your vision. Because uh, he he had to just go off and keep working. So, you know, part of part of a board is that we're a team. You know, we have our own little eight man team. <laughs> Texas Kidney Foundation. Well, it's kind of a twelve man team. We have a few a few others too that we work with, and we we're prepared. And and your your vision and thoughts at the beginning of the the pandemic helped us to to create what we're executing around now. So so uh, I know you you get busy and worried that you're not doing enough, but you really are. You're you're doing more than your your 
you're doing more than than uh, your fair share, you know, so. And I mean, that's where we all, you know, that's why it's a team, right? I that's mean, right. As, as, as leading this team, uh, you know, we took, as we focused on kidney patients and the chronic mm -hmm. kidney disease community, we actually took this opportunity. Now we have an epidemic, a pandemic in this country. How can we use our platform as the Texas Kidney Foundation to really help the public and the community understand COVID? Because mm -hmm. it's part of health. That's mm -hmm. all to do with equity. And we have to bring those topics in because we can't keep them siloed. And I think as a team, we have achieved that and mm -hmm. we would move forward because that's our vision. Our vision exactly. is to make sure that the health of our community is going to prosper. And that's, that's where right. we are. And so that's why we're using our organization as a platform to provide education, to provide mm -hmm. outreach in making sure that vaccines are important. These are things that we require that's going to minimize fatality rates. It's going to minimize your uh, symptoms, as you had brought up, it affects everybody very different. Uh -huh. and that is where we are. So, so as an organization, we have taken different opportunities that exist to make sure that we can actually focus on the population that is with most need. And that's where our focus stands. The disproportionate and the underserved population that is so important to us in our mission. And you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930am The Answer.